Hello, and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel, and I am your host. To all of my original listeners, welcome back. To those new to the show, welcome. I am a storytelling historian with a great love for the Plantagenet dynasty, as I am a direct descendant to Geoffrey of Anjou via my paternal line on my grandmother Carter's side. I descend through Diana Skipwith, daughter of Sir Henry Skipwith and Amy Kemp. Diana married Captain Thomas Carter. They immigrated to the Americas in 1650, settling in Barford in Lancaster County, Virginia. So with that said, please like and download the show as it helps other listeners learn about the show. If you wish to support this podcast, there is a link for you to do so, and it would be much appreciated as it would help with costs of maintaining the website www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find the podcast as well as extra items for each episode you can read or download. You can also find great books and videos for sale as well. Feel free to also visit our Facebook page. A link is provided as well on the website. Okay, on to the episode. Pounds, but a competent king with the goodwill of his leading subjects would have been able to refinance it without too much difficulty. Yet Edward was, from his earliest months as king, viewed with suspicion and hostility. Every aspect of his life seemed at odds with the office. In an age when chivalry and martial valour still formed a crucial part of the royal ideal, Edward was constantly portrayed as a degenerate. Many of the most poisonous chroniclers pen portraits of him date from a time when disaster had struck his reign, but it was nevertheless commonly and contemptuously said that he was obsessed with such peasant activities as swimming and rowing. Edward was accused by the chronicler Ranulf Higdon of preferring the company of jesters, singers, actors, carriage-drivers, diggers, oarsmen and sailors, to fraternizing with nobles and knights, and indeed sailors, barge-masters and carpenters were recorded dining in the king's chamber at times during the reign. If only he had given to arms the attention that he expended on rustic pursuits, he would have raised England on high, bemoaned the anonymous author of The Life of Edward II, a contemporary history of the king's reign. A royal messenger once said that the king preferred thatching and ditching, countryside hobbies better suited to lower-class craftsmen than to princes of the blood, to hearing the mass. Although other evidence suggests that Edward was conventionally pious and could hold his own in battle, he did not enjoy or hold tournaments, nor did he sponsor great chivalric occasions such as the Feast of the Swans, at which his father had belted him as a knight. This lack of interest in the proper public conduct of kingship eventually reduced him to a figure of popular derision. Edward also had a reputation for favouritism, and this was a great deal more damaging. He spent his entire adult life under the shadow of cronies with whom he fostered unhealthy obsessions. The king dishonoured the good people of his land, and we will never know if Edward II and Piers Gaveston were lovers, whether in the sense that we would understand such a relationship now or on any other terms. It seems likely that they shared some bond of adoptive brotherhood, modelled perhaps on that of Jonathan and David in the Old Testament, in which— Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Every major chronicler of the reign noted that Edward treated Gaveston as a brother, and the king referred to his friend as such in official documents. Perhaps there was a sexual dimension to the relationship as well, but if there was, it was not known at the beginning of the reign, when Edward was betrothed to Philip the Fourth of France's daughter Isabella. A fiercely conventional king such as Philip would never have allowed his daughter to marry a sodomite and a heretic, and yet there was an intimacy to the relationship that scandalized their contemporaries, and it fell into a wider pattern of behavior that Edward's subjects thought of as abominable and unkingly. This first became a matter of national importance in 1305, when Gaveston was banished from the young Edward's company as part of the prince's punishment for a bitter argument with Edward I's treasurer, Walter Langton. Although he was readmitted and knighted in the great ceremony that preceded Edward I's final Scottish invasion the following year, Gaveston absconded from the campaign with twenty-one other knights, and disappeared overseas to take part in tournaments. 
For this indiscretion he was exiled from England on a pension of one hundred marks per year. When Edward of Carnarvon learned that his father had died in Burby Sands, and that he was now Edward II, King of England, his first act was to recall Gaveston from exile, grant him the earldom of Cornwall, and organize his marriage to Margaret de Clare, the daughter of Gilbert Earl of Gloucester and Joan of Arker, Edward's own sister. This was an inordinately lavish promotion, more fit for a kinsman of the king. The earldom of Cornwall was one of the great Plantagenet titles, most famously held by Henry III's brother Richard, who in his day had been one of the senior noblemen in Europe, King of Germany and Count of Poitou. It brought with it lands not just in the south-west, but in Berkshire, Oxfordshire, and Yorkshire. The annual income was around four thousand pounds. It was both a royal title and an award of enormous and significant power. To bestow it on a mere household companion like Gaveston was not merely overly generous, but politically very dangerous. The list of people who might be offended by Gaveston's promotion was long. Chief among them was Margaret of France, the Dowager Queen, who had understood from the late King that the earldom would go to one of her sons, Edward II's half-brothers Thomas of Brotherton and Edmund of Woodstock. Despite their youth, either of these might have been expected to be placed in nominal charge of England's government when Edward went to France in 1308 to marry Philip IV's daughter Isabella, but they were not. That honour fell to Gaveston. That the office of regent was one that traditionally fell to a senior royal official, a member of the royal family, or the queen, did not trouble Edward, but it troubled all around him. Gaveston was manifestly not a Plantagenet, nor was he a justiciar, a chancellor, or an archbishop. "'Yesterday's exile and outcast has been made governor and keeper of the land,' wrote the author of The Life of Edward II in disbelief. But regent was not the zenith of Gaveston's rise, as the king's coronation set out to prove. Edward II was crowned at Westminster on February 25, 1308, in a ceremony attended by the combined nobility of England and France. All crammed together into Westminster Abbey to witness the anointing of a new king, accompanied by his twelve-year-old queen Isabella, whom Edward had married in Boulogne a month previously, in a shimmering ceremony attended by five kings and three queens. The abbey church and the streets around were packed with participants and onlookers. The crush was so intense that a knight and former seneschal of Pontieu, Sir John Bakewell, was killed when a wall collapsed. Inside the church the assembled nobility glittered in cloth of gold. The French had sent a magnificent delegation, including the counts of Valois and Evreux, Isabella's brother Charles, the future Charles IV of France, John, Duke of Brabant, and his wife Margaret, Edward II's sister, Henry, Count of Luxembourg, soon to become the Emperor Henry VII, and many more besides. The English earls, barons, and knights of the shire packed alongside them to witness the most important political ceremony of all. Silent but present were the remains of the old king. Edward I's newly constructed tomb was a smooth and austere box of black Purbeck marble, inscribed with the words, Eduardus primus scotorum malius hic est, pactum serva. This is Edward I, hammer of the Scots. Honour the vow. It was a cool reminder that kingship brought military responsibility. All who had promised to see out the vision of a reunited Arthurian Britain were held to their responsibility and the oath that had been sworn at the Feast of the Swans. The new king entered the abbey church wearing a green robe with black hose, walking barefoot along a carpet of flowers, with his young bride beside him. Above the royal couple was held a great embroidered canopy, and in front of them processed the magnates and prelates of England. There was strict protocol to the order of procession, which invariably caused arguments at coronations. Each earl had a certain role to fulfil. At Edward's coronation the earls of Lancaster, Warwick, and Lincoln carried great swords. The king's cousin Henry of Lancaster carried the royal sceptre. Four other barons, Hugh Dispenser the Elder, Roger Mortimer of Chirk, Thomas de Vere, son of the Earl of Oxford, and Edmund Fitzalan, Earl of Arundel, 
bore a board on which the heavy and luxurious royal coronation robes were placed. Unexpectedly among all these great men was Piers Gaveston, proceeding in pride of place directly before Edward and Isabella. According to the analyst of St. Paul's, he was decked out like the god Mars. Gaveston trumped the assembled nobles in their cloth of gold by wearing silks of royal purple decorated with pearls. He carried the crown of Edward the Confessor, the most sacred item among all the royal regalia. This could not have been construed by the assembled nobles as anything but a vile insult. Before the stunned congregation, Edward swore his coronation oaths in French rather than the traditional Latin. In a development of the coronation oath, the king promised to uphold both the laws of St. Edward the Confessor, and also the laws and rightful customs which the community of the realm shall have chosen. Under the king's father, parliaments had been held frequently, and were forums for political dissent, discussion, debate, and negotiation. By including in the sacred coronation vows a nod to the developing role of the political community, the pageantry that day reflected the new political reality. Yet it was Gaveston, not the new coronation oath, that occupied everyone's attention. At every juncture his presence offended the other nobles present. When the time came for the ceremonial fixing of the king's boots, Gaveston shared duties with the Count of Valois and the Earl of Pembroke, fixing the left spur to the king's heel. After Edward and Isabella had been anointed, as the king sat on the throne containing the stone of Schoon to receive homage from his magnates, Gaveston led the outward procession carrying the royal sword Curtana, which had been carried by the Earl of Lancaster on the procession into the abbey. In a society ordered by hierarchy and sacred belief, these were grave offences against protocol. As the pantomime unfolded, there were unseemly shouts of protest from among the congregation. But worse was to come. Gaveston organized the feast that followed the coronation, and he made it a vulgar bid to award himself further glory. The walls of the banqueting hall were arrayed with rich tapestries. They were decorated not with the arms of Edward and Isabella, but with those of Edward and Gaveston. For the new queen to be sidelined so blatantly was offensive to her visiting family, an insult that was deepened when Edward spent the entire banquet, at which the food was late and virtually inedible, talking and laughing with Gaveston and neglecting his bride. Even before the ceremony the young queen had written to her father complaining that she was kept in poverty and treated with dishonour. Here was a public demonstration of her ill-treatment. To make things worse, it later transpired that Edward had given the best of the Queen's jewels and wedding presents to his favourite. The coronation was a disaster. It confirmed to the entire English political community, and to Isabella's family, that the King was dangerously obsessed with Piers Gaveston, in a fashion that was not only unbecoming, but likely to bring political ruin. Edward could scarcely have found a better way to upset and alienate all who sought to support him. This audiobook is continued on Disc 11. The Plantagenets by Dan Jones continued. Disc 11 It took mere days for the anger engendered by the coronation to spark a political crisis. With a parliament due to be held in April, there were rumblings that the magnates would come in arms, seeking to visit retribution on Gaveston for his behaviour. In anticipation of trouble, the bridges over the River Thames were broken at the end of March, and the king took refuge in Windsor Castle. Within days of his coronation, Edward had expended every ounce of political capital and goodwill that a new reign customarily brought. When a Parliament met in April 1308, a group of magnates led by Henry de Lacy, Earl of Lincoln, produced a series of three articles of shattering constitutional importance. "'Homage and the oath of allegiance are more in respect of the crown than in respect of the king's person,' they declared, drawing for the first time an explicit distinction between the king and the office he held. The magnates demanded that Gaveston be exiled from the kingdom and stripped of his earldom, writing that he disinherits the crown and impoverishes it, and puts discord between the king and his people. This was no manifesto from a disaffected minority party, 
but a clear signal of constitutional opposition presented by virtually the entire English barony. The Earls of Lancaster, Pembroke, Warwick, Hereford and Surrey all supported the Earl of Lincoln and made a show of armed aggression in Westminster to make it clear how serious they were. Archbishop Winchelsea, who had been absent from the realm during the coronation, was recalled to England by the king. As soon as he arrived, he sided with the barons, threatening to excommunicate Gaveston unless he left England by the end of June. Only one baron, Sir Hugh Dispenser the Elder, stood by the king. Dispenser was a trusted diplomat and an ardent loyalist who had paid a fortune, two thousand pounds, to marry his only son, known as Hugh Dispenser the Younger, to the Earl of Gloucester's sister in 1306. He would stick close to the king in years to come. Despite such a slim show of support, Edward wriggled. It was obvious that Gaveston had to go and that he could not retain his earldom, but rather than comply directly with his opponents and send his favourite away, Edward appointed Gaveston to the position of King's Lieutenant in Ireland, and awarded him castles and manors in England and Gascony with which to support himself. He accompanied Gaveston to Bristol, and saw him off from England's shores with the utmost dignity. Everything demonstrated by his father's career ought to have taught Edward II that the politics of English kingship were based on consensus and compromise. Barons were not naturally troublesome or opposed to royal authority, but they were exceptionally sensitive to the inadequate or inequitable operation of kingship, and would act to take a grip on government if they believed that the king was failing in his task. Alas, Edward was unable to perceive this. He saw Gaveston's exile as a personal attack on a man he loved, rather than as a political act undertaken for the good of the realm. Thus, in 1308, he was concerned with nothing more than negotiating the return of his favourite. It would be a familiar pattern established over the following four years, one that brought England once more to the brink of civil war. The King Restrained it is hard to overstate the hatred that flared against Gaveston in the aftermath of the embarrassing coronation. To Edward it must have seemed unfounded. He appears genuinely to have considered Gaveston his brother, and rewarded him accordingly with the lavish gifts and deep emotional bond that his feelings called for. The Queen came a poor third in the relationship, to the intense chagrin of the French, but she was, after all, a child of twelve, barely ready to be either a sexual partner or a meaningful political figure. Fatefully, instead of following Gaveston's banishment to Ireland with a resolute effort to address the urgent needs of government, Edward bent his energies to the task of rescinding his favourite sentence, and petitioning the Pope to annul Archbishop Winchelsea's suspended sentence of excommunication. Edward was not a stupid man, and he realised that Gaveston could not be recalled without a charm offensive levelled at his magnates. A concerted drive to regain the favour of the leading earls and bishops was built around a reform programme. Statutes were issued at Stamford in July 1309 dealing with purveyance, the forced purchase of provisions for the royal army, and the excessive powers of royal officials in the shires. In return, Gaveston was allowed back into England, and was re-granted his earldom of Cornwall in August. The grant was witnessed by many of the most powerful men in England, the bishops of Durham, Chichester, Worcester and London, and the earls of Gloucester, Lincoln, Surrey, Pembroke, Hereford and Warwick. However, the king's cousin Thomas Earl of Lancaster, the Earl of Arundel and Archbishop Winchelsea were absent. As soon as Gaveston was back, his intemperate behaviour resumed, According to several chroniclers, he came up with offensive nicknames for a number of the other earls. He called the Earl of Warwick the Black Dog of Arden. Gloucester was known as Horson, Lincoln as Burst Belly, Lancaster as Churl, and Pembroke as Joseph the Jew. Gaveston also upset the Earl of Lancaster by having a Lancastrian retainer replaced in a royal office by one of his own men. His influence over the king remained powerful and extremely disturbing, not least because the country was supposed to be readying itself for a return to war with the Scots. As 1309 unfolded, tensions grew. An army ordered to muster for Scotland in September did not materialise, yet Edward's officials continued to exercise the rights to prizes and purveyance, 
using the food and supplies they seized to supply royal garrisons in the north. A tax of a twenty-fifth was also taken. The burdens were so severe that rumours of an impending peasant's revolt began to circulate. Popular anger was focused through the magnates at a parliament in early 1310. There was a general refusal to attend Westminster unless Gaveston was dismissed from the king's presence. When Edward acceded to this request, the life of Edward II records, Parliament made urgent complaints that the state of the king and the kingdom had much deteriorated since the death of the elder King Edward, and the whole kingdom had been not a little injured. Their complaints were summed up in a petition. Its authors pointed out that since 1307 Edward had been guided by evil counsellors, and that he had impoverished the crown to such a degree that his ministers were forced to break their obligations under the Magna Carta by extorting goods and money from the people and the church. Edward was accused of losing Scotland by his negligence and diminishing the royal possessions in England and Ireland. This was a damning indictment. To blame the dire Scottish situation on Edward II overlooked the fact that the overstretched military position derived in large part from his father, but otherwise the complaints were justified. To fix the broken state, the petitioners in Parliament demanded that twelve discreet and powerful men of good reputation should be elected, by whose judgment and decree the situation should be reformed and settled, and if anything should be found a burden on the kingdom, their ordinance should destroy it. This was a bold and urgent step to take when a reign was still only in its third year, and it shows the concern with which the whole political community viewed Edward's leadership. The barons were not unreasonable men, driven by ambition and a desire to encroach upon royal power. In the main, they simply wanted a strong, fair king. If Edward was unconvinced at the beginning of the Parliament, he was soon shown how seriously his magnates took the situation. The life of Edward II records that they accused the king of breaking his coronation oath, and threatened him with deposition if he failed to heed their demands. The united barons said that unless the king granted their requests, they would not have him for king, nor keep the fealty that they had sworn to him, especially since he himself was not keeping the oath he had taken at his coronation. Edward realised that he had no choice but to bow to the popular demands. On March 20, 1310, a group of twenty-one ordainers, as the lords who were responsible for carrying out the reforms known as the Ordinances became known, was elected and sworn in. It was a balanced panel of loyalists and reformers, which included the Archbishop of Canterbury and many of the English bishops, along with every English earl except for Oxford, Surrey, and, unsurprisingly, Piers Gaveston, Earl of Cornwall. They agreed to publish their ordinances for the reform of the realm in September 1311. In September 1310, eager to keep his distance from the ordainers in Westminster, who were busily, and to his mind impertinently, putting together a plan to reform his kingship, Edward made his way to the Scottish borders. He stayed until July 1311. He had nothing like the cohorts of soldiers that his father had taken north during the mighty campaigns of the previous decade, but an army of three thousand or so infantry and seventeen hundred cavalry was still a sizable force. But he made no progress. Robert Bruce continued to evade open battle, preferring to skirmish and retreat. There were diplomatic exchanges between the Scottish and English kings, and Gaveston took a strong force to Perth with the intention of winning support through his military endeavour, but nothing was achieved. Eventually Edward ran short of money and supplies, failed to raise further troops either in Ireland or in England, and having overseen a failed expedition, returned south in the summer of 1311. Robert Bruce invaded the north of England as soon as Edward left, causing much misery and damage. The king returned to Westminster to find a full programme of political reform in action, and his enemies strengthened in dangerous ways. While he was in Scotland, several important men had died. Anthony Beck, the Bishop of Durham, was one. More significant for the rest of his reign was the death of Henry de Lacy, Earl of Lincoln. Lincoln, who also held the earldom of Salisbury, was in many ways the elder statesman among the magnates. He was well known, vastly experienced, and respected. 
His death robbed English politics of an influential figure. It also altered the delicate balance of English aristocratic power. Lincoln's daughter Alice was married to Thomas Earl of Lancaster, the king's first cousin. Lincoln had no sons, so Lancaster inherited Lincoln's two earldoms when the old man died. This gave Lancaster a vast power block, which he would not hesitate to exploit. Even before Lincoln's death, the thirty-three-year-old Earl of Lancaster was a formidable figure. He already held three earldoms, Lancaster, Leicester, and Derby. His father was Edward I's brother Edmund. His mother had been a queen consort through her marriage to Henry I of Navarre. His half-sister, Joan of Navarre, was Queen of France. Lancaster was thus directly descended from both Henry III and Louis VIII of France. He was around six years older than the king, and the two had been close companions during their youth. Lancaster had supported the king through the tribulations of his early reign, but like so many of the other English barons, he had been forced into a reformist position by the behaviour of Gaveston and the manifest abuses in government, particularly the onerous practice of purveyance. He had drifted out of the king's circle during the winter of 1308 to 1309, and was usually to be found far from Westminster on his northern estates, where he could play the role of the region's most powerful Englishman to his heart's content. When Lancaster inherited the Lincoln estates, he became at a stroke the most powerful nobleman in England. The Lincoln inheritance boosted his income to eleven thousand pounds, almost double that of the next most senior earl, Gilbert Earl of Gloucester, and gave him lands throughout the kingdom. He could raise vast private armies of retainers, and wield power at both a national and a local level. Like Simon de Montfort, another vastly powerful earl and Plantagenet kinsman who had tormented Henry III, Thomas Earl of Lancaster was an abrasive figure. Proud, spiky, and dogmatic, he tended to isolate himself from his peers, and found it difficult to command the loyalty of his inferiors. He was a hugely unpopular landlord, who frequently broke the law against his tenants. He did not inspire devotion, and his lack of political judgment was a source of concern as he was elevated to the position of second most powerful man in England. Throughout his life, Lancaster was the most zealous of the ordainers. He was heavily involved in preparing the schedule of the forty-one articles of reform that was presented to Edward at the end of August 1311, and promulgated to the country in November. The 1311 ordinances were broad-ranging and exhaustive. They attacked familiar abuses dating back to Edward I's reign, purveyance and prize, the siphoning of customs duties to Italian banks in order to service debt, the king's right to go to war without consulting Parliament. They placed Edward under heavy restrictions. He could not grant away his lands without the consent of the barons in Parliament until his debts were paid off. Revenues were to be paid directly to the exchequer rather than into the king's household. Parliament should be held once or twice a year with special committees set up to hear complaints against the king's abuses. Edward's entire administration, from his chancellor and treasurer to his county sheriffs, was to be appointed by committees. Here was 1258 all over again. Government was effectively removed from a failing Plantagenet king and reimposed upon him in a strict and prescriptive way. How the ordinances were practically to be enforced against the will of a truculent and reluctant king was no clearer in 1311 than at any other time of constitutional crisis. Almost every previous attempt to reform an unwilling Plantagenet king had ended in civil war, yet there was little option but to try. One demand could be enforced, the exile of Piers Gaveston. As in 1308, the ordainers levelled another raft of attacks at Gaveston, who was now seen as a focal point for all the inadequacies of kingship. It was stated in the articles of the ordinances that Gaveston had led the king astray, that he had persuaded him deceitfully and in many ways to do wrong, and that he had estranged the king's heart from his liegemen. Gaveston was blamed for taking the country to war without the baron's permission. He was accused of having blank charters sealed to the deception and disinheritance of the king and crown, and more generally of behaving craftily, falsely, and treacherously to the great disgrace and damage of the kingdom. 
For the third time in his life, Edward was faced with an angry demand that his adopted brother Gaveston should be exiled, this time not only from England, but from Wales, Scotland, Ireland, and Gascony, and from every land as well beyond the sea, subject to the lordship of the King of England, forever and without return. Gaveston left England from Dover on November 3rd, and landed in Flanders, intending to seek the hospitality of the Duke and Duchess of Brabant, to whom Edward had written in advance requesting that they look kindly upon his exiled friend. Once again, however, the exile was short. At the end of November a second set of ordinances was issued, probably on the order of Lancaster and the Earl of Warwick. These were aimed solely at purging the king's household of anyone connected with Gaveston. They backfired. The severity and provocative nature of the new terms succeeded only in making the king defiant. Humiliated and furious, he secretly recalled Gaveston after only a few weeks of exile. In early January 1312 the disgraced Earl returned once more to England, arriving in Yorkshire just in time to meet his wife Margaret, who had given birth to their first child, a daughter named Joan. Almost immediately Edward began distributing notices to the country saying that he rejected the ordinances, and confirmed that he had recalled Gaveston and restored him to his earldom. In late February Edward and Gaveston celebrated Margaret's churching, it was the last celebration that they would share. Manhunt The village of Deddington in Oxfordshire was arranged around a castle built shortly after the Norman conquest by Odo, Bishop of Bayeux, the brother of William the Conqueror. It was familiar territory to Aymer de Valence, Earl of Pembroke, whose wife was staying just twenty-two miles away in the manor of Bampton, when the Earl arrived in the village on the evening of June 9, 1312. He came with a notorious prisoner in tow. Piers Gaveston was captured. The King's favourite had been in custody since May 19th, when he had surrendered to Pembroke, the Earl of Surrey, and two other barons who were besieging him in Scarborough Castle. Pembroke held Gaveston prisoner in the name of the political community of England. He affected to take his duties seriously. During negotiations with Edward II that had taken place at York, the Earl had agreed that he would forfeit all his property if any harm should come to Gaveston while in his custody. The manhunt for Gaveston had been planned and put into action with a remarkable degree of cooperation among the great magnates of England. Within weeks of his arrival back in England, the Earls had mustered men right across England and Wales, under the pretense of organising tournaments, lest the country be terrified by the sight of arms, wrote the author of The Life of Edward II. The real reason for raising men was of course to make war upon the king and his loathsome favourite. The prime movers in the plot were Archbishop Winchelsea, who had excommunicated Gaveston, the Earls of Lancaster, Pembroke, Hereford, Arundel, and Warwick, and two lesser barons, Henry Percy and Roger de Clifford. Others, such as the Earls of Surrey and Gloucester, were aware of the plot and involved to a lesser degree. Each magnate had been charged with keeping the peace in a different part of the kingdom, while Pembroke and Warwick had formal responsibility for capturing Gaveston. Pembroke, Surrey, Percy, and Clifford had eventually plucked Gaveston from his bolt hole at Scarborough Castle after a short siege. Negotiations for his release had immediately begun with Edward, and were set to continue nearer to London during the summer. Pembroke journeyed south with the captured Earl, and on a warm June night arrived in Deddington. In spite of his solemn oath to ensure Gaveston's safety, the Earl made a curious decision that evening, announcing that he was leaving Deddington and going to visit his wife at Bampton. He would be leaving Gaveston to rest under a light guard. Was this foolishness or treachery? Pembroke forever protested the former, but it was naive to leave the most hated man in England alone overnight when his enemies abounded. Within hours of Pembroke's departure the Earl of Warwick had swooped into the village with a large party of men-at-arms. The man that Gaveston had scorned as the black dog was here to bite his tormentor. The author of The Life of Edward II gave the story a vivid hue. When the Earl of Warwick had learned all that was happening about Piers, he took a strong force and secretly approached the place where he knew Piers to be. 
Coming to the village very early in the morning one Saturday, he entered the gate of the courtyard and surrounded the chamber where Gaveston was staying. Then the earl called out in a loud voice, "'Arise, traitor! You are taken!' And Piers, hearing the earl, also seeing the earl's superior force and that the guard to which he had been allotted was not resisting, putting on his clothes, came down from the chamber. In this fashion Piers is taken and is led forth not as an earl but as a thief, and he who used to ride on palfreys is now forced to go on foot. Warwick marched Gaveston from the village of Deddington in triumph, his retainers blowing trumpets to advertise the victory around the rolling fields of Oxfordshire. Crowds thronged around the parade, bellowing abuse at the fallen favourite. Gaveston was marched all the way to Warwick Castle, where he was thrown in prison as a traitor to the realm. This was no renegade action from a single earl. Within a week of Gaveston's capture, the earls of Lancaster, Hereford, and Arundel, and their retinues of privately hired soldiers and servants made their way to Warwick, along with lesser barons involved in the plot. Pembroke, now showing genuine horror at his contemporary's ruthlessness, protested to Lancaster that his vow to protect Gaveston was being torn up in front of him. He was dismissed with the advice that he ought in future to make his promises with greater care. Lancaster, a royal earl and the most senior man present, from this point took overall responsibility for the fate of Gaveston. The prisoner was tried before a court assembled under Lancaster and Warwick's authority, accused of breaching the terms of the ordinances which called for his exile. Clearly he was guilty. Here was a man brought before a court assembled especially for his condemnation, operating under a law drafted specifically for his destruction. Gaveston was sentenced to death. On June 19th he was taken from his cell and brought before Lancaster. Chroniclers described a pitiable scene in which the prisoner wailed for mercy. Instead of clemency, Gaveston was handed over to armed guards, who dragged him two miles north of Warwick to Blacklow Hill. At the top of the hill he was passed on to two Welshmen. Each dealt a deadly blow. One ran him through the body, and the other hacked off his head. Lancaster was shown Gaveston's severed head as proof that the ghastly deed was done. The body lay on the ground where it fell, until some Dominican friars collected the remains, sewed the head back onto the body, and took it to Oxford. The Dominicans were an order especially close to the king, whose members had taken an active part in his education, and that Edward had patronised generously throughout his adult life. Therefore for two and a half years the king's friend's corpse lay embalmed and dressed in cloth of gold in the Dominican house. That was as much as charity would bear. Gaveston died excommunicate, and could not be buried on holy land. Even given Gaveston's insolence and his irresponsible career, this was a shocking way for the king's favourite to die. Edward, when he discovered the fate of his adopted brother, was distraught. Rather than count his errors, he became ever more determined to resist the ordinances. He would never forgive his cousin Lancaster for his act of arrogant brutality, and a blood feud boiled between the two for the best part of the next decade. And far from uniting England, Gaveston's death divided the political community. A permanent split was created among the barons. Those responsible for Gaveston's murder were now permanently isolated from royal favour, while Pembroke and Surrey, who felt that they had been at some level deceived by Lancaster and Warwick, became unwavering loyalists. For more than a hundred and fifty years the Plantagenets had reigned in England by rule of law. Only in the most severe instances had great men died in the course of political and constitutional disputes. Thomas Becket, by misadventure, Simon de Montfort on the battlefield, Arthur of Brittany in cold blood in his prison cell. Now a king's closest companion had been killed in calculated fashion on the order of another earl. For all his transgressions, Gaveston's death could not possibly be a just sentence under the laws of the realm. Rather, when he was run through and beheaded on Blacklow Hill, Piers Gaveston, a nobleman whether his peers liked it or not, was murdered. Kidnapping, violence, and murder were commonplace in medieval society, but they were not an acceptable part of the ordinary course of royal government, 
except under the severest circumstances. Now violence had become a political tool in England. Pandora's box had been opened. As Edward and Lancaster moved toward implacable hatred, the Plantagenet family was in danger of tearing itself apart and taking England with it. Promise and Disaster to be in Paris during the summer of 1313 was to know the high delights of medieval France. At the beginning of June the whole population flocked in the city streets, and lodgings were crammed with countless noblemen, young knights, the aristocratic young ladies of Europe, and dignified visitors from foreign lands. Great crowds watched public performances, ceremonies, and processions. Colourful fabrics decked the streets, while the city bourgeois provided a fountain that sprayed wine into the air and was decorated with fabulous creatures—mermaids, lions, leopards, and mythical beasts. In a covered market in one part of the city an enclosed wood was built and filled with rabbits, so that revellers could amuse themselves by chasing tame animals. Open-air theatrical performances and musical recitals delighted the population— the French chroniclers averred that this was the most spectacular festival ever seen in France. It was a summer of great pageantry and celebration. King Edward II of England and Queen Isabella were at the heart of it all. The King and Queen of England had arrived on a state visit at the end of May, travelling with the earls of Pembroke and Richmond and other loyalists, including Hugh Dispenser the Elder and Henry Beaumont. They had been invited to France to enjoy the honour of witnessing Edward's father-in-law, King Philip IV, knight nearly two hundred young men, including his sons, Louis, King of Navarre, Philip, and Charles. The ceremony had echoes of the great Feast of the Swans held by Edward I on the eve of his final Scottish invasion in 1306, at which Edward and all his new knights swore first to conquer Scotland, and then to win back the Holy Land. But as in all matters, the French crown determined to make the ceremony greater than anything before it, an occasion of unsurpassed glory and magnificence. As the English party rode into Paris on June 1st, they were greeted with huge acclaim and celebration. A series of six celebratory banquets was planned to mark their arrival, and the occasion was costing Edward handsomely. He had given his father-in-law nearly one hundred oxen and two hundred pigs, three hundred and eighty rams, two hundred pike, two hundred carp, and eighty barrels of wine toward the feasting. At the banquet that the English were to host, Edward planned service on horseback, inside tents thrown open for the public to gawp into. The banquet was to be lit even in daylight by hundreds of torches. He had hired famous minstrels and musicians to entertain the guests, and the King of Navarre's men had built a castle of love, to provide amusement between courses. Edward was weak and unpopular at home, but in France he was welcomed with reverence into the royal carnival. The writer of The Life of Edward II dismissed the first six years of Edward's reign as a betrayal of Plantagenet values, writing that the king had achieved nothing praiseworthy or memorable, except that he has made a splendid marriage and has produced a handsome son. How different were the beginnings of King Richard, who before the end of the third year of his reign scattered far and wide the rays of his valour. But in France Edward was welcomed with the dignity befitting his connection to the king. There were many causes for the English and French royal parties to celebrate together. Philip wished to mark a victory in a long dispute with Rome, which had ended with a French pope, Philip's childhood friend Clement V, moving the papacy to Avignon in 1309. Popes remained at Avignon until 1377, marking a period which the Italian poet and scholar Petrarch called the Holy See's Babylonian captivity. The French king had also ensured the destruction of the Knights Templar, a crusading order of holy warriors whose vast wealth and money-lending ability had made them enemies throughout Europe. Pope Clement had condoned Philip's vicious persecution of the whole Templar order on the grounds of heresy and sodomy, in which hundreds of knights were tortured and killed. In 1311 the order had been officially disbanded under papal authority, and much of its wealth reverted directly to the French crown. 
Moreover, peace between England and France over Gascony was open to arrangement, and Edward and Philip had made that most Christian of accords, an agreement to launch a new crusade against the Muslims of Egypt. On June 6th they took their crusading vows at Notre Dame, where Edward became the sixth successive Plantagenet king to make the sacred promise. How much life had improved since the previous June, when the murder of Gaveston had pushed the country to the brink of civil war. Although in public Edward lamented Gaveston's idiocy in falling into Warwick's hands, in private he had considered punishing Lancaster and his allies with a military campaign against them. Only counsel from those around him that civil war would allow Robert Bruce to invade from Scotland held him back. It had taken six months to coax England away from the brink of insurrection and anarchy, but as Edward and Isabella joined the revelries in Paris, they both could reflect that things were on the mend. For a start, they were now parents. Queen Isabella had grown into her role as queen after Gaveston's death, aided by the presence of her aunt, Margaret of France, the king's stepmother. She had been loyal to her husband through his troubles, and finally on November 13, 1312, she had given birth to a son at Windsor. Resisting pressure from the French to name him Louis or Philip, the boy had been named Edward. According to a monk of St. Albans, the boy's birth had distracted the king from grieving for Gaveston. The queen had written to the citizens of London to announce the birth, and the news was greeted with great rejoicing in the streets of the capital. Edward of Windsor's birth had been a relief to all. The boy was made Earl of Chester at the age of twelve days, and his existence gave a measure of stability to the regime. Edward II had followed the birth of his son by raising his twelve-year-old half-brother Thomas of Brotherton to the rank of Earl of Norfolk. When Edward and Isabella returned from their lavish tour of France in mid-July, it seemed as though their greatest moment of crisis had passed. There was by no means an easy relationship between the king and his baronial enemies, who continued to despise a number of other royal companions, most notably Hugh Dispenser, who had been virtually the only baron to have stood by the king and defended Gaveston until his death. Dispenser was a rare figure among the barons, one prepared to see past the king's failings in order to further his career and wealth through grants of land, office, and title. His advocacy for Gaveston and his uncritical commitment to royal policy made him the object of some suspicion by Lancaster and his allies. Nevertheless, at a Westminster Parliament in October, peace between the two parties was formalised. Months of mediation by envoys from France and the papacy had been required to broker peace. But finally Edward agreed to pardon Lancaster, Hereford, Arundel, Henry Percy, Roger de Clifford and their allies for Gaveston's death. In return, the barons agreed to pardon former allies of Gaveston like Dispenser. The ordinances were not mentioned, nor did the barons demand that any ministers be removed. Gaveston and his supporters were no longer described as enemies of the king and kingdom. It was a step forward, if not quite full reconciliation. More good news followed. At the end of November Edward obtained Parliament's consent to wage war against the Scots. In December he went to France to seek his father-in-law's permission to secure a papal loan against the Duchy of Gascony. He was successful, and the next spring £25,000 were received from Rome, allowing Edward to fund a large campaign in the north. Finally, it seemed, he was about to take up where his father had left off. Edward's Scottish campaign began promisingly. On June 17th or 18th the king marched a formidable army out of Berwick. It was well equipped, well funded, and well stocked. The wagon train was said to stretch seven leagues, roughly twenty miles from end to end, while ships hugged the coast to keep the army provided. The army was easily the largest that had been raised for fifteen years since Edward I's Falkirk campaign of 1298. The earls of Gloucester, Hereford, and Pembroke, Hugh Dispenser, and Roger de Clifford all brought large contingents with them, and there were thousands more knights and infantry both in the king's personal retinue and in the army at large. Missing were the earls of Lancaster, Warwick, Arundel, and Surrey, 
who sent the minimum number of fighting men for which they claimed they were obliged under law. They argued falsely that the campaign was not properly agreed upon in Parliament. The true reason was that they feared that if Edward were victorious in Scotland, he would be capable of turning on them and their lands in England. Edward marched his men fifty miles north from Berwick, and the thunderous approach of the English army gave the impression, according to the author of The Life of Edward II, that it was quite sufficient to penetrate the whole of Scotland. Some thought that if the whole strength of Scotland had been gathered together, they would not have stayed to face the king's army. Unfortunately for Edward, that would not be the case. He arrived near Stirling on June 23rd to find that Robert Bruce had camped a smaller army, consisting of five hundred light cavalry and no more than six hundred infantry, in the New Park, a leafy hunting ground on the road to Stirling. Half a mile away lay a stream known as the Bannock Burn, which regularly flooded the land around it, making it boggy and treacherous underfoot, conditions that Bruce's men had deliberately worsened by digging potholes in the ground that were disguised under piles of sticks and grass. The Battle of Bannockburn fell into two phases. The first, which took place on June 23rd, was a day of skirmishing between English and Scottish knights. Henry de Boone, the Earl of Hereford's nephew, challenged Robert Bruce himself to single combat. He had his head split clean in two with a blow of the Scottish king's battle-axe and died on the spot. The twenty-three-year-old Gilbert Earl of Gloucester then brought dissent in the English ranks by disputing the leadership of the vanguard with Hereford, who was constable of England. The vanguard was the foremost of the three traditional divisions of an army, and the honour of leading it was therefore substantial. But Gloucester gained little from winning the argument as he was knocked from his horse in combat, and was fortunate to escape with his life. In a separate engagement on the same day, English cavalry reconnoitring a siege at Stirling Castle were attacked by Scottish spearmen. Sir Thomas Grey had his horse killed under him and was captured, along with many other knights. If this was an ominous beginning, it was soon compounded by further divisions among the English ranks. Gloucester argued overnight with the king, the Earl believed that the troops, exhausted from the march north, urgently needed rest before carrying on the engagement with Bruce. Edward wished to fight on. He called the Earl a traitor and a liar, and a furious argument erupted. The following morning, as the armies drew up again for battle, Gloucester attempted to defend his honour. He began the fight hot-headedly and recklessly by charging the English vanguard at the Scottish infantry but far from achieving a feat of chivalrous daring-do, Gloucester was surrounded and killed in a seething crush of horses and men. This was the cue for a general slaughter of the English cavalry by Scottish spearmen, arranged in hedgehog shiltrums as they had been at Falkirk in 1298. On that occasion Edward I's archers had destroyed them with a deadly rain of arrows. But at Bannockburn Edward kept his archers in the rear until too late, and his cavalry was run through on the sharp tips of Scottish spears. As the battle turned into a chaotic massacre, Edward had to be dragged from the battlefield by the Earl of Pembroke and Sir Giles d'Argentin, a man reputed to be the third greatest knight in the Christian world. The king fought bravely as he retreated, smashing at Scottish attackers with his mace when his horse was killed. It took the combined strength of Pembroke and Sir Giles to remove Edward to safety and avert a catastrophic capture. But there was a sickening end even to the king's escape. Sir Giles, mindful of his knightly duty in the face of abject defeat, was hacked to pieces when he left the king and hurtled back into battle. Edward and an escort of five hundred men left Scotland in a hurried naval evacuation from Dunbar. They left behind them thousands of doomed men. The Bannock Burn, the River Forth, and the boggy ground all around groaned with dead and dying Englishmen. The mud thickened with blood, seeping into the tiny criss-crossing streams that covered the battleground. Some of the greatest knights in Christendom were slain by Robert Bruce's army, butchered on the battlefield, or drowned attempting to cross the Bannock Burn or the River Forth. Besides Gloucester and Sir Giles d'Argentin, at least two hundred knights were killed, including Sir Roger de Clifford. The Earl of Pembroke was very lucky to escape alive. 
Edward's privy seal was captured in battle, the Earl of Hereford was taken prisoner by the Scots, as were numerous other high-ranking knights. As the English fled, the Scots pursued them across the border, their plundered belongings left behind. The author of The Life of Edward II lamented, "'So many fine noblemen, so much military equipment, costly garments and gold plate, all lost in one harsh day, one fleeting hour.' But the gold plate and costly garments were not the principal losses. Although military tactics were turning at the beginning of the fourteenth century, and infantry were beginning to hold sway over mounted knights wherever the two met, the loss at Bannockburn was still humiliating. Bruce was stronger than ever in Scotland, and was free to open a military front in Ireland. Edward II, meanwhile, was once again at a grievous disadvantage in his relations with the earls who had tormented him. Lancaster, Warwick, Arundel, and Surrey, having gambled on Edward's military incompetence by refusing to serve on the Scottish campaign, were now ascendant. Instead of a victorious king swooping down to crush his domestic enemies, a humbled king was returning to face his demons. With the king's fortunes as low as at any time during his reign, the disgruntled barons were free to press their desire for reform upon him once again. New Favourites On January 2nd, 1315, the embalmed body of Piers Gaveston was buried at King's Langley, one of Edward's favourite residences. The manor house in Hertfordshire had belonged to his mother, Queen Eleanor. Edward had visited it as a child, and it had undergone extensive work and restoration to create a sumptuous residence for the family. The brightly painted halls were lit by large fireplaces, and beasts roamed grounds large enough to host tournaments. Within the parkland and vineyards that surrounded the main house, there was a lodge known as Little London. It was a place of royal delights, and now of royal mourning, as the king's former favourite was finally given the monument Edward desired for him. Gaveston had almost certainly been absolved of his excommunication by the new and pliant Archbishop of Canterbury, Walter Reynolds, and could now be transferred from his Dominican morgue to Langley's cold earth. His embalmed corpse was wrapped in cloth of gold that had cost the king three hundred pounds, before being buried with honour in the presence of most of the bishops of England. The English earls were less well represented. The attractions of a lavish wake at which at least twenty-three tons of wine were drunk were not enough to gather Lancaster and his allies to watch as the man they had killed was finally laid to rest. Plenty of political tension still existed between Edward and his cousin's supporters. Reconciliation was not likely to be helped along by the ghosts of 1312. The years that followed Bannockburn saw the King and the Earl of Lancaster make efforts, ultimately fruitless, to coexist. Political recovery was marred by the intransigence and arrogance of the Earl, and the King's desire to retreat once more into a circle of men whom he trusted, but whom the rest of the country found it hard to stomach. The core members of the King's new cabal had come to watch the old favourite laid to rest. Chief among them were the two most loyal Earls, Pembroke and Hereford. One was the King's saviour at Bannockburn, and the other had recently been released from captivity under Bruce, having been exchanged for Bruce's wife, Elizabeth de Burgh, who had been taken prisoner by the English. Also attending were Henry Beaumont and Bartholomew Baddlesmere, who had been one of the late Earl of Gloucester's most important retainers, and who was becoming an ever more influential baron in his own right, as well as more than fifty other knights and most of Edward's royal officials. But most important among all the party were Hugh Dispenser and his son and namesake Hugh Dispenser the Younger. Whatever wickedness was perpetrated in the king's court proceeded from his counsellors, wrote the author of The Life of Edward II, and the remark was pointed toward the dispensers. The family had never wavered in their loyalty to Edward, and following Gaveston's death they moved to fill the gap he had left. Both demonstrated unquestioning commitment to the king, and were rewarded by successive grants of land, power, and access that allowed them to act with immunity from the law. Hugh the Elder was as close a companion as ever, regularly accompanying the king on foreign visits, 
and gradually accruing titles and castles in the west of England, while pursuing a bitter personal feud with Lancaster. The author of the life of Edward II alleged that Hugh the Elder had harmed many unjustly through his office, he had disinherited many great men and rich men. The same was true of Hugh the Younger, who was on the road to becoming an even closer friend and ally to the king than his father. These two men grew to have an ever more profound and destructive influence on Edward as his reign spiralled toward disaster. Between 1314 and 1317, northern Europe suffered terribly as perishingly hard winters were followed by exceptionally wet summers. It rained hard and ceaselessly between May and October 1315, bringing flash floods that swept away villages, destroyed arable land, in some cases forever, and created massive lakes in low-lying parts of Yorkshire and Nottingham. Everywhere the downpour ruined the crops in the ground, plunging England into a state of appalling famine that lasted for two years. People starved in the countryside. Whole villages sank into beggary, as crop yields plummeted by more than eighty per cent. People ate anything they could find—bird droppings, pets, damp and rotten corn, and on occasion human flesh. Mob violence broke out over scraps of food or the tiny yields of what few plants could grow in the waterlogged ground. Disease spread among sheep and cattle, destroying England's wool revenue and meat supplies, and putting pressure on the military garrison near Scotland. Food shortages and sodden living conditions made life on the frontier hungry and